I know I've said this on the podcast a bunch of times, but North Carolina is an enchanted place. It's a place full of wonder and mystery and intrigue. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is some of the more famous North Carolina mysteries. Welcome to the NC Everything Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis, and this is a bi-weekly show where I talk about everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. Listeners, new and old, thank you for joining me today. This is going to be a, a compilation show, and like I said, I'm going to talk about a few mysteries, not just one. I've only done a few stories like this, where, or a few episodes like this, where I mix multiple stories into, into one show, but I kind of like it. It's a little bit longer show, but you get a variety. You don't have to listen to one story about the same thing for 20 minutes. But as usual, before we get to the content, I want to say a few things. Now, not as much as I did in the last episode, but a few things. Right out of the gate, I want to say if you like the show, you can follow me on Facebook by searching The NC Everything Podcast on Facebook. I have a group. You don't have to answer a bunch of questions to get into it. You can just join right up. Now, I was doing the Instagram and Twitter. I don't really mess with those a whole lot. I do have a Pinterest page because I read an article one time that said a podcast should have a Pinterest page. But again, I don't, I don't really do a whole lot with it except add episodes there. But Facebook is where I'm, I'll add any extra content. And I'm not really consistent on Facebook. I just add stuff whenever I'm scrolling and I see something. Um, I encourage everybody to add whatever they want to the Facebook group or Facebook page. But it's just a place for, for the NC Everything podcast listeners to kind of come together and, and be there. Um, you know, I know that sounds vague. Um, it's a Facebook group. I'm not a social media guru anyway. I don't have a media manager. But in the group, you will uh, you will see a link for every new episode when it comes out and, and a few other things. A lot of times I'm, I'm traveling around North Carolina and uh, I'll, I'll post pictures of my travels there. And uh, just all kinds of all kinds of stuff, a plethora of stuff. Next, I want to say I love listener suggestions. If you have an idea for an episode, you can shoot me an email at thenceverythingpodcast at gmail.com. If I can put together an episode with, uh, with your suggestion, I'll certainly do so. Also, and I haven't said this in a really long time, but I, I want to collect North Carolina stories. I don't know where this show is going. I, um, I'm always thinking up stuff or trying to figure out how to make the show better or change it up a little bit. But from the very beginning, I, I, I want to collect North Carolina stories. Now, it can be anything from the biggest fish you caught or that one time you climbed Mount Mitchell or that one time your neighbor came over and done some crazy thing. If it's a North Carolina story and it's appropriate for the show, I want to put it in here. Now, the catch to that one is I don't want to put together um, a whole episode on one story unless it's a really long story. Um, it would be more of a, a compilation show like this. But what I would do is if um, you did send me a story, I'd save it. I'd sit on it until I had a few. And uh, I'd love to do a whole show of just nothing but stories from North Carolinians. And again, if you have a story, you can email me at thenceverythingpodcast at gmail.com. But I'm going to have a link to my email address in the show notes or the description. Um, there will also be a link to the Facebook page and the website, which is located at www.thenceverythingpodcast.com. So uh, just check below for any links you may be interested in. Also, my sources, my sources will either be down there or on the website, but uh, there, there will be a link to my sources somewhere. 
Now, let's see. Um, I think that's about it. Um, again, if you watched the last episode, you know I've, I've been on a, a hiatus for quite some time. I'm a little bit rusty, but we'll get back into it. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and get to the content. Now, these mysteries that I'm going to talk about in this show, they're just picked at random they're in no certain order. And there's a lot of mysterious stories around North Carolina, in and around North Carolina. I'm only covering a few of them today, but this is probably something I'm going to come back to in the future. And last thing, I'm not a true crime podcast. One of these mysteries is a, a crime, but I'm not a true crime podcast. I'm just kind of winging it. There's a lot of podcasters out there who cover crime a whole lot better than I do. If you're interested in the ones I listen to, I like True Crime Garage, Swindled, National Park After Dark, True Crime All the Time, Red Handed, and of course, I can't get enough of the Dateline podcast. Although, if you listen to a few Dateline podcasts, you know that the husband always did it. Now, I'm not getting paid by any of those uh, podcasts to, to boost them on this show. They're just great podcasts, and a lot of them kind of inspired me to do what I do. Also, I think all podcasters should build each other up, and that's certainly what I'm doing here. All right, enough of that. Let's get into the content for real this time. I'm going to start with a short one. This is actually a suggestion by Rip from Smithfield, North Carolina. Thank you, Rip, for the suggestion. This one's called The Mako Light. Now, this story takes place down in Wilmington in a place called Farmer's Turnout. Well, it used to be called Farmer's Turnout. According to my research, that particular place isn't really around no more, or at least you won't find it on a map. But it says, it says it's about 14 miles outside of Wilmington. Now, we're going back to 1867. By the way, if you see me rubbing my hands together, I'm, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see I'm actually out in my welding shop today. Um, it's freezing out here. I don't have heat out here. I do have a wood stove. I didn't crank it up because I didn't feel like messing with all that. But it is a metal building, and I am freezing. But my normal podcast room has temporarily been turned into a makeshift storage room. So I hope it's not too echoey. But um, that's why you see me rubbing my, rubbing my hands as we go. Okay, sorry, we're going back to 1867. There's a train heading down the tracks near Farmer's Turnout. It was around Mako Station. Now, I don't know if this train was heading toward Mako Station or leaving it. I don't know if it matters. But the conductor of this train, Joe Baldwin, he was in the last car of the train. Well, the train is clacking down the tracks, and Joe Baldwin realizes the last car, his car, has become uncoupled. So the train moves on without Joe, and Joe's car slowly comes to a stop on the tracks. Well, Joe wasn't sitting there for too long before he hears another train coming down the tracks. Joe immediately knows he's in trouble. So he grabs a lantern, and he stands on the back of his car, and he starts waving the lantern around, trying to get this train to stop. But this was all in vain. The oncoming train slams into Joe's stopped train car, killing him instantly. Now, a witness to the wreck said he saw the lantern that Joe Baldwin was holding fly up into the air from the train wreck and land right side up in a nearby swamp, and the lantern, the lantern continued to burn. Now, whether that's true or not, who knows? Okay, this next detail is kind of kind of gory. Um, it talks about his injuries. So if you have sensitive ears or you don't want to hear this, you might want to skip ahead. It's only it's only for a couple seconds. It's it's an integral part of the story, but you might want to skip ahead a couple seconds. You'll figure it out later. Eventually, when people came out to the incident, 
they realized that Joe was decapitated during the train wreck. Well, the wreck was cleaned up and everybody moved on. However, it wasn't long after the wreck that something strange started happening down there in Farmer's Turnout. People traveling down the tracks and people living in the area began to see a flickering light up and down the railroad tracks. It wasn't just a flickering light, it was a really bright light, like a light from a lantern. And of course, people said this was the ghost of Joe Baldwin and he was out there looking for his lost head. Now, you might be rolling your eyes right now and saying, of course, he was looking for his, his lost head. You know, somebody's, some ghost is always looking for something. But the thing is, this particular phenomenon, though not witnessed by myself, it has been witnessed by a lot of people. They started calling it the Mako light or the ghost of Mako station. Oncoming trains would actually stop because they would see the light and they would assume that another train was coming down the tracks and they were trying not to have another collision. The light was so common, in fact, that signalmen would eventually change their lights so they could tell the difference between other trains and the Mako light. One time, President Grover Cleveland was on this route and he saw the Mako lights and he asked what they were and he was told the story of Joe Baldwin. And if you still think this is kind of like an old wives' tale or something to scare your kids, in 1964, the Southeastern North Carolina Beach Association got a hold of a Parisian ghost hunter and psychologist who's pretty famous. His name was Hans Holzer. And he came out and investigated the Mako lights. And he certified in a ghost hunter type of way that this was indeed the conductor, Joe Baldwin. Now, the tracks around Mako Station were removed somewhere around 1980. And it says that sightings of the Mako light have diminished since then. Haven't completely went away, but they've uh, definitely lost frequency. And uh, that's the Mako light. Again, it was a short one. But if any of you, if I'm lucky enough to have a listener who's actually seen the Mako light, please write in and tell me about your experience. I, yeah, a picture would be incredible, but, but I would love to talk to somebody who's actually seen the Mako lights or the Mako light. And again, Rip from Smithfield. Thank you for suggesting that. All right, now I'm gonna tell you about the big hole. And this is another short one. It's short because there's not a whole lot of information about it. And you'll understand why here in just a minute. The big hole is actually not very far from our house. In fact, I'd say it's probably within 10 miles. So in 1960, a big old hole was dug in Chatham County. It's said that this hole is 13 stories deep. The digging of this hole was a group effort between the U.S. government and the American Telephone and Telegraph Corporation, better known as AT&T. Now, if you look at the big hole on Google Earth, there's not a whole lot to see. It kind of looks like a small field with a few outbuildings in the middle of it. I had read that these outbuildings were called project offices. So why did they dig this big old hole in Chatham County? Well. Supposedly, it goes back to the Cold War. The military got up with AT&T to build a U.S. command and control center in case of nuclear war. So, you know, um, in case everything is knocked out, there was, there's a, a big hole where, where things can still function. Now, I've watched enough documentaries to know that there's underground everything everywhere in the United States. But it was just a few years ago when I heard about the big hole on a, another podcast that... I realized I live pretty close to one of these, these underground things. And I would definitely tell you which podcast it was that I heard about the big hole on, but I genuinely can't remember. It was, it was several years ago. But anyway, this program that 
that is responsible for the big hole, or this program that the big hole is, is called an automatic voice network, or Autovon. Now, it's kind of outdated now, but in the 1960s, this was top-of-the-line technology. And again, the whole idea was that if U.S. communications completely went down, then, then places like this could crank up immediately and keep on, keep on getting it. It says that there was about 60 of these Autovon stations built around the United States. So over here in Chatham County, 191 acres was purchased for $27,000, and then $7 million was spent to build whatever they have on that site. Which again, if you look on Google Earth, it doesn't look like $7 million of 1960s money. Um, there, it's just a few buildings. So there's, there's a lot of money invested on that site somewhere, so it must be underground. Now, when the Cold War ended, strange stories started emerging about the big hole. Now, that's what's written, and I wish I could tell you some of these strange stories, but I really couldn't find a whole lot. You see, people don't really want to talk about it. And when I say people don't want to talk about it, there's houses in pretty close proximity to the big hole. In fact, when you go up the road, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, um, there's residences there, and the big hole's somewhere down this road. Now, the fact that people don't want to talk about it that could be out of fear. Um, they may not care. They may think it's all a bunch of silly mess. But again, I really don't know. Now, this this area, like I said, is 191 acres. So it's not like Area 51 or Fort Bragg. It's not a huge military base. It's literally just a clearing out in the woods. Now, two things that are supposedly still true is that AT&T still owns the property. And despite the Cold War being over, the place is still fully guarded. Now, here's some facts that I read about the big hole that may or may not be true, but they say it's one of the best fallout shelters in the United States. It has a continuous flow of fresh air, heat, and air condition, and that would probably explain some of the outbuildings that you see on top. Now, it's said that this, this underground complex is built in such a way that it, it literally hangs from the surface of the earth, so it kind of dangles like a Christmas ornament or probably more like a pendulum. And this is so it can absorb the shockwave from a nuclear blast. Also, the floor of the complex is supposed to be set on shock-absorbing coils for the same reason. So, shockwave from a nuclear blast, the whole building may shake and, and bounce and, and weave around, but overall, everything inside will be just fine. And lastly, the walls are supposedly 18 inches thick, and they're covered in copper to deflect electromagnetic pulses. Now, as we progressed through history, old analog phones, well, they went away and digital communication took over. So, even though AT&T supposedly still owns the site, the, faci the facility was deactivated in 1996. As far as I can tell, the most common thing that comes out of the, the big hole site are a bunch of conspiracies. And you know the basic conspiracy theories, you can pick one. Aliens, uh, portals to a new dimension, also called Stargates, that's still a good movie by the way. I've even heard about alien experiments down there. Now, I can't tell you anything for sure. Maybe that's frustrating, but I did try to visit the site for myself one time. You see, sometimes we drive pretty close to the big hole when we're heading out to Chatham County. And so one day we're down there and I decided to drive down Big Hole Road. And yes, it's called Big Hole Road. So uh, incognito, right? Anyway, me and my wife, we turn up Big Hole Road and we, we don't go very far. We pass some of those residential houses. We don't get very far before we see a sign that said something like, turn around now, 
don't go any farther. I can't remember exactly what it said. Again, it was a, a few years ago, but that was kind of the gist of it is don't come here. Well, I'm kind of curious. So I decided I wasn't going to turn around. I kept driving. But then I came across another sign and it said that if you travel beyond this point, you will be killed. No, I'm just kidding. It didn't say that, but it was another sign that said something along the lines of do not go past this point. Well, after seeing that sign, I got cold feet. And so I did indeed turn around and leave. And that's all the experience of the big hole I have. For all I know, it was going to be two or three more signs that said, don't come around here. And then you would have got to the gate and had to turn around. I, I have no idea. Um, I wish I could tell you that armed guards come running out of the woods and put a gun in my face. No, I don't really want to tell you that. Um, I, it would have been a better story if they did, I suppose. Um, I, I don't want to go to federal prison, though. I hope I don't go to federal prison for talking about this. But anyway, that's the big hole. You can call it North Carolina's Area 51 or, or just a big hole. I mean, why not call it what it is? It's a big hole. Anyway, um, that's really interesting, and I probably won't ever know anything else about the big hole. All right, and let's move on to a, a really famous one. Every time I look up North Carolina mysteries, this comes up, and that's Nell Cropsey. This is the, the crime one that I was talking about, and I'm actually not sure how big of a mystery it is, but I feel like I pretty much figured it out. I'll tell you what I think at the end. It doesn't seem too mysterious. So Nell Cropsey. Nell Cropsey was actually Ella Maud Cropsey. I never found in my research why they called her Nell Maybe that's a, a derivative of Ella, but I will be calling her Nell Cropsey, not Ella Maud Cropsey, because that's what she goes down in history as. She was born in July of 1882 in Brooklyn, New York. 16 years later, in 1898, the Cropsey family leaves New York and head for the great state of North Carolina. They move on to a 65-acre farm on Riverside Drive in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. I don't know if they purchased that farm down there, but Nell's father became a justice of the peace in Pasquotain County, so they probably could have afforded to buy the farm. But he may have just been helping her out on the, he may have just been helping out on the farm for room and board. I couldn't really find a definitive answer to that. Anyway, one year after moving to North Carolina, at age seventeen, Nell Cropsey starts dating a guy named Jim Wilcox. And there's four characters here, um, not a whole cast but there's four main people okay so Nell is dating Jim Wilcox and N Nell's sister Olive she started dating a man named Roy Crawford and yes my last name is Crawford but to my knowledge there's no relation between me and Roy however my family has been here for like 300 years so there's a possibility that me and Roy Crawford are kin anyway on the evening of November 20th 1901 the boys came over Roy and Jim and I guess they're having like a double date thing because they're all kind of hanging out at the house. Eventually, everybody in the house goes to sleep except for the couples, Olive, Nell, Roy, and Jim. At around 11 p.m., Jim Wilcox gets up to leave and he asks Nell to walk him out onto the porch. About a half hour later, Roy Crawford, he decides to leave. Now, for this whole half an hour, Nell and Jim have supposedly been on the porch. Olive, who had been in the house with Roy the whole time, she hasn't seen Nell in this whole half hour. She just assumed that, that Nell had came back in the house and went to bed. But Olive, she shared a room with Nell. So when Olive decides to go to bed, she noticed that Nell wasn't in bed like she assumed. But she didn't panic. Olive assumed that Nell was somewhere on the property, still 
chatting with Jim Wilcox. Another hour passes by, and now it's midnight. All of a sudden, the dog begins to bark really loud, and the whole Cropsey family wakes up, and they run out onto the front lawn to see what in the world's going on. Well, there was nothing there. I mean, I'm assuming the dog was there because he was barking, but there was no sign of anybody, and certainly not Nell. Now the family's starting to get worried because they realize Nell's missing. Nell's father, the Justice of the Peace, he tries to keep everybody calm and says that Nell and Jim probably just run off to get married. Now that, that seems really extreme. I'll be honest with you, if my teenage son run off with his girlfriend, I would assume they're having a hickey contest or, or worse, but I wouldn't assume that they've run off to get married. But anyway, I understand he was trying to keep everybody calm. I'm sure the mother was pretty frantic. And it said that the, the father, the justice of the peace, he was pretty worried himself, you know, but he was just trying to contain it. But he decided he was going to go ahead and try to get to the bottom of this. But it gets weird right out of the gate. The first thing he wants to do is go to the home of Jim Wilcox and figure out if Nell's there. But he gets two surprises on that trip. One, Jim Wilcox was at home, but Nell wasn't with him. And two, Jim Wilcox refused to even come to the door. Is that strange? Yeah, you're damn right it's strange. Like, why wouldn't you come to the door if the father of the girl you're dating is knocking on it? If you, you know, didn't have anything to do with anything. If you told me my girlfriend was missing, um, I'd be jumping all over it. I think most of us would. I wouldn't be hiding behind the door or hiding in my house from my girlfriend's dad. But you see what I mean. Um, this seems seems kind of cut and dry. I mean, obviously, Jim has got something to hide. So I'm not sure how big a mystery this is. So because Jim wouldn't come to the door and he's acting kind of cagey, Nell's father decides to call the chief of police. Now, yes, Jim Wilcox's father was the sheriff, but it would seem kind of pointless to try to get the sheriff to help out since he was most likely in the house with Jim Wilcox or at least close by. So anyway, Nell's father calls the chief of police. Police chief takes Jim Wilcox back to Nell's house. And that's where they interrogate him for the next couple of hours. But for the most part, the interrogation went nowhere. All Jim would say was that he left Nell on the porch and she was crying when he left. He said that they talked for about 10 minutes and then he went home. Now the possibility of Nell committing suicide did come up, but it was shut down almost immediately. The reason suicide was shut down was because Nell had a, a trip coming up to New York and she was pretty excited about it. Then they suggested that maybe Nell ran away. The problem there is none of her stuff was missing. So if she ran away, she just walked away with whatever she had on. Also, it was reported that Nell was having trouble with her right foot. Now, I don't know what kind of trouble, but apparently she wasn't walking too good. So, so hitting the road on foot probably wasn't something she was going to do. Well, they called in bloodhounds and the police and civilians, they searched the area around the farm, but they never found Nell Cropsey. Over the course of investigation, they did find out that Jim Wilcox had a really short temper. And a lot of people close to Nell said they didn't actually believe Nell was in love with Jim. In fact, they suggested that she might be leaving him soon, maybe when she left for New York. Now let's fast forward to December 27th, 1901. It's been a little over a month since Nell went missing. Well, they pull a body out of the Pasquotank River, and it turned out to be the body of Nell Cropsey. People started going crazy. They wanted to, to lynch Jim Wilcox. 
Well, Jim was arrested and interrogated again. But Jim could not or would not account for his whereabouts around the time that Nell went missing. They did an autopsy on Nell Cropsey, and they determined that she received a really hard blow to her left temple. So, let's put it all together real quick. Supposedly, Nell doesn't love Jim. Supposedly, Jim has a really short temper. And supposedly, she received a really hard blow to the head. Then you got Jim acting really dodgy that night and from that point forward. And that's why I say, is this really a mystery at all? I feel like Jim realized that Nell really wasn't that into him and he had that age-old philosophy of, if I can't have you, nobody will. And maybe he didn't mean to kill her, but he beat her ass and she died. And then he throws her in the river. And I'm not the only one who thinks this, because in March of 1902, Jim was found guilty of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to hang on April 25th. But it wasn't long after he was found guilty that a mistrial was declared by the North Carolina Supreme Court. I couldn't find any details on why this mistrial happened, but Jim was retried in 1903. And again, in 1903, Jim was found guilty of murdering Nell Cropsey. This time, it was second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, Jim had served about half of that time when, in 1918, he was visited by the North Carolina governor. This was Thomas Bickett. The governor pardons Jim Wilcox, and he gets out of prison. Now, as soon as Jim Wilcox gets out of prison, he meets up with a newspaper editor, W.O. Sanders, and they talk about getting together to write a book about Nell Cropsey and the case. And then Jim Wilcox commits suicide with a shotgun. Now, it wasn't long after that 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 author that he got together with, W.O. Sanders, well, he dies in a car accident. And to this day, nobody knows what Jim Wilcox and W.O. Sanders had shared together about the Nell Cropsey case. And that's the mystery of Nell Cropsey. Again, maybe not a mystery. I think it's actually more mysterious that Jim Wilcox and W.O. Sanders both died when they were trying to write a book about the story. I mean, why would Jim Wilcox kill himself after prison rather than in prison? And why would he do it after talking to a well-known author about a book deal? And what are the odds that Jim and Sanders would, would both die in a close proximity to each other um, as far as timeline is concerned? Now, I do believe that, that Jim killed Nell, but I wonder if somebody killed Jim out of vengeance for Nell, and maybe they killed Sanders, uh, W.O. Saunders for Saunders or Sanders? Saunders. And maybe they killed W.O. Saunders because they were trying to profit, you know, off the, the death of, of Nell Cropsey. But anyway, that's all I have on Nell Cropsey. Now, I was going to cover the Brown Mountain Lights because that's a really big North Carolina mystery. But I'd like to do a little more research on that and dedicate an entire episode to Brown Mountain Lights or light phenomenon worldwide, you know. But um, I don't want to put Brown Mountain Lights in this particular episode. But I do want to say that the Brown Mountain Lights is one of my favorites. So instead, I'm, I'm going to wrap up with Theodosia Burr. Theodosia, that's kind of an unusual name. It's T-H-E-D-O-S-I-A. Theodosia Burr was the daughter of Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr, if you don't know, is the man who faced and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. That duel did not happen in North Carolina, but it's kind of an interesting backstory to the feud between Hamilton and Burr. Um, I would definitely look into it. But I'm not going to talk about it too much here because Alexander Hamilton was not from North Carolina, and neither was Theodosia Burr. 
But Theodosia Burr is forever tied to North Carolina in kind of a mysterious way. But first, I'm going to give you some background on Theodosia Burr, for history's sake, if nothing else. She was born on June 21st, 1783, right before we kicked the British out of the United States. In 1801, she marries Joseph Austin, who was a planter from South Carolina. And in 1812, Joseph Austin becomes the governor of South Carolina. Theodosia and Joseph, they had a son together, and it says that it was a, a really hard birth. And it gave Theodosia health issues for the rest of her life. So she lived in South Carolina, but she spent a lot of time at a bunch of different health retreats. In 1812, her son died. Theodosia became really depressed, and she kind of locked herself at home for several months. Nobody seen or heard from her. Eventually, she did kind of come around as she decided to go to New York and meet with her father. So on December 31st, 1812, she got on a schooner called the Patriot in Georgetown. Well, this ship set sail, and it was never seen again. It disappeared somewhere between South Carolina and New York. But they think that the wreck may have occurred off the coast of North Carolina. And in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you why. There's been some theories about what happened to the ship. You see, the, the ship disappeared during the War of 1812. So they think maybe the ship was sunk by enemies. Some people think that maybe a storm sunk the ship. But then there's the Carolina bankers. One of the theories is that, is that the ship was attacked by a group of wreckers called the Carolina Bankers. The Carolina Bankers operated out of Nags Head. And what they would do, they would set up fake signal lights. And this is so they could lure ships into the dangerous sandbars and shoals around Nags Head. Once the ship became stuck, the Carolina Bankers would board the ship and steal everything on board. But to this day, nobody really knows exactly what happened to that ship. But then there's the portrait of Theodosia Burr. And that's kind of a, an additional mystery from North Carolina. In 1869, a guy named Dr. William Poole was called to the house of a fisherman. His elderly wife was near death, and the doctor was called in to see if he could kind of ease her pain. Now, there wasn't a whole lot the doctor could do, and the fisherman didn't have a whole lot of money to, to pay the doctor. But what he did have was this really nice portrait of a young woman. And he asked the doctor if he would take this picture, this portrait, this painting of a woman as payment. Well, the doctor was really surprised to see such a, a really fine piece of art hanging in this poor fisherman's house. So, of course, the doctor asked him, where did you get this, this painting at? Well, the fisherman tells the doctor this story that happened years ago. This young woman, she came drifting ashore at Nags Head in a rowboat. Supposedly, the woman had no idea who she was or where she was from, and the only thing she had on her was this portrait that she wouldn't let anybody take from her. So the people of the village, they nursed this lady back to health, and eventually she settled down in the village, and she married the fisherman. And this portrait of this mysterious lady hung on the wall at the fisherman's house. Well, the doctor, he tells the fisherman, yeah, I'll, I'll take the picture as payment for treating your wife. No problem. But when he said this, the, the old lady, supposedly the woman in the picture, she jumped up and said, no, that's my picture. You can't have it. And she, she became very irate. But one other thing she said, this elderly lady, was that I'm on my way to New York to visit my father. Now, maybe she was delirious. Who knows? But the old woman grabs the painting and she runs into the ocean and disappears in the waves. And she was never seen again. However, the next day, the portrait floated back to shore. Now, maybe that old lady was Theodosia Burr, 
and she got hit in the head and lost her memory, we'll never really know. But eventually, Dr. Poole did get the painting, and he told that story for years and years after the fact. Today, the portrait's called the Nag's Head Portrait of Theodosia Burr. It's, it's not been signed, but it's an 18 by 20 inch painting, and most art enthusiasts believe it's done by known painter John Vanderlyn. And as of the time of doing this research, you can see the painting at the Lewis Walpole Library at Yale University. And that's Theodosia Burr. And that's this episode of the NC Everything Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it's, like I said, they weren't great, great mysteries, but they're, they're famous mysteries. And I, I enjoyed putting it together. I, I love mysteries. I love true crime. And um, uh, I get that from my mom. I, I like I like doing armchair detective stuff. Um, I love conspiracy theories too. Don't forget if you liked the episode, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And you can join the Facebook group by searching the NC Everything Podcast on Facebook. You can visit the website at www.dnceverythingpodcast.com. And you can email me anytime and tell me what you think of the show, give me ideas, or tell me some North Carolina stories. Now, I'll again, I'll have all those links below for, for how to contact me and, and the Facebook group and all that. Um, again, I'm kind of rusty, and I'm, I'm absolutely freezing out here. Again, I'm in my welding shop. It's always cold out here, but normally I'm, I'm welding, so I'm not too cold. I'm not usually sitting still like this. But anyway, I don't want to ramble on too long. I do want to say thank you for listening, and thank you for hanging in there during my long, long break. And again, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated all of your support. And, uh, and that's the episode. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.